This podcast is for information purposes only and is not and should not be construed as professional advice or an offer or commitment by any Rubberbank group member to enter into a transaction. The views expressed by the presenter and or guests are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Rubberbank. Please see the podcast description for our full disclaimer. Welcome to RoboTalk's Growing Our Future, where we talk to experts from both here in New Zealand and across the world to bring New Zealand farmers and growers the information they need to make informed strategic decisions about the future direction of their business to ensure they continue to thrive in a fast-changing world. The development of environmental plans for farms is becoming increasingly common and at some point in the future mandatory. But what exactly does good environmental management on-farm involve? What aspects of the environment should farmers be focusing on? Where on the farm should environmental management efforts be focused? And what do you need to consider when planning to undertake environmental enhancement on farm? I'm your host, Blake Holgate, and today we're exploring how to go about improving environmental management on farm. Now to be clear, we aren't talking about the management of farm production systems themselves, but the management of the environment in which those production systems operate. However, ultimately, good environmental management will buffer the impact of farm production systems on the environment. And in a world where more food needs to be produced in a way that reduces its environmental footprint, I'd say that's pretty important. To have that discussion, I'm joined by Tonkin and Taylor's principal environmental scientist, Roger McGibbon. Roger is an ecologist with more than 30 years' experience in environmental restoration and management, whom has that arguably unique skill of translating science into practical, impactful, on-farm actions. Roger, welcome to Growing Our Future podcast. Thanks, Blake. Great to reconnect, Roger. Um, I mean, I, I know it sort of goes back 10 years now nearly with it. We've uh, been running sort of joint workshops for farmers on this topic and, and really looking forward to today's discussion. But perhaps maybe before we kick into it, if you're able to give our listeners a bit of an overview about your career and, and what you're doing now and, and how it relates to the topic we're about to talk about. Yes, certainly. As you introduced, I am an ecologist, a, a restoration ecologist, I guess is the technical term. You know, I have a university degree in, a, in ecology and zoology from Canterbury, so very long time ago, it seems. The area that I work in very much is that interface between productive industry and, I guess, environmental interests or concerns. I have a farming background, grew up on a farm, farmed for a number of years myself, and um, I've always, I guess, been interested in trying to reintroduce natural values and natural elements into the farming landscape, not only because it's a desirable thing, I guess we all like biodiversity, but because it can actually help farm production. It can increase resilience and even improve productivity in certain ways. So, look, I've worked in that area. Um, the sort of things I do, I guess, are you know, revegetation, particularly planting native trees and, and shrubs in appropriate places, water quality and nutrient management on farm, again, using natural systems to try and manage those. More recently, a lot of effort on wetland restoration and constructed wetlands, again, for nutrient and biodiversity uh, management. Native forestry for biodiversity, but also for sustainable timber production as well. Uh, design and construction of pest-proof fences. It was a little sideline for a number of years. And, and throughout all of that, pest and weed control, which I think is you know, a vital component of all good environmental management, no matter what the land is. So work a lot with farmers, farming groups, industry groups too, and more and more community groups around the country. Um, you know, it seems like um, a number of organisations, perhaps spurred by central government funding, have joined together, looking collectively to you know, create community 
gains in, in investment in biodiversity and plantings and things on farms predominantly, but with a community focus. So as you've probably highlighted in your introduction, Roger, there's, there's a wide number of environmental aspects to the farming system that are, are relevant. So I suppose when you're talking to farmers, what do you highlight as the main considerations that they should be thinking about it when it comes to good environmental management on farm? Yeah, there are a number of things I, I encourage farmers to think about, and some will be relevant to their properties and some not, but they include indigenous biodiversity, plants and animal life. A lot of times when you say biodiversity, people think of birds and insects and what have you, but but particularly plants and indigenous native plant material. Water management, um, certainly. So, you know, water in a lot of ways is the litmus, the litmus test, if you like, of how well we're performing environmentally on farm. It's also what we, we pass you know, downstream to neighbours and communities, so it's important we look at that. When I look at water too, it's water quality, which is I think is the obvious one, but it's also a focus on the movement of water across land. The speed with which water flows across land can you know, cause lots of problems, or if you reduce it, can uh, leave out lots of problems as well. So I look at that side. Nutrient management, obviously, and when I say nutrient, I mean con- you know, contaminant management, I suppose, um, both uh, phosphorus, nitrogen, sediment and faecal pathogens as well. So they are obviously being generated on farm. How can we um, reduce uh, the impact of those or reduce the loss of those off farm? Carbon management more and more so now as well. It's become almost a trendy tag thing in general society at the moment, uh, climate change and carbon. But actually carbon is organic. It's, It's about growing things and being able to grow things on farm and retaining that organic matter. It's not complex. It's not fuzzy stuff. The more carbon we can retain in our soils and on our farms, the better, more productive we're going to be and the better environment we're going to have. Those are the the four focus, biodiversity, water management, nutrient management and carbon management, and asking farmers to look at their properties, see what values they have currently and what of those most need attention. And just how interlinked or connected are those four aspects? If we're addressing one, is that going to have benefits for one or, or multiple other indicators across the nature system? They're all integrated or, or you know, one benefits the other. If you build biodiversity, particularly native biodiversity, but even just you know, increase the diversity of species even in your pasture, that sort of thing, you're going to build resilience. You're going to create more habitat for other indigenous species. The more organics you have in the system, the more you can retain nutrients and and have that for future use, but also retain water. Hold back and store water so it's not lost, you know, the instant rain hits the ground. And all of that too, the natural processes that go on when you you increase carbon, you increase the diversity of life living on it, the greater the ability to, to manage nutrients. We might talk about that shortly when we talk about wetlands, but you know, we have natural organisms, bacteria particularly, that can break down the nutrient or the leftover nutrients that are on farm that farms create. They are all self-reinforcing. Um, you do one, you're going to benefit the others. So they are the main considerations, but what about when you're talking or thinking about locations on farm to focus on? Are there key sites on farm that farmers should really be focusing on when it comes to their environmental efforts, Roger? Yes, there are. So look, these will depend on the nature of the farm. Not all farms have them, but at the moment, I, I look first for wetlands, wet areas, areas that just don't want to be dry. Despite all your drainage efforts, they, they still, the drains get filled in. Um, they stay wet for a good part of the year. They want to be wet places. So wetlands first, and um, we'll come back and talk to you about what, you know, how they function, but that's not just what sort of the typical wetland, the large marsh or the duck pond, but it's, it's springs and seeps. 
you know, small springs on, on hill country um, have an amazing ability to actually act as nutrient removers. So, yeah, the scale of this can be as small as something that is a, a seep or a, or a spring area as well. Obviously, streams and stream margins, and particularly where on farms where there is a, either high rainfall or a lot of you know, drainage water going through the property, we all know of the importance of having to try and um, filter or reduce the products of farming, um, sediment, nutrients and fecal contaminants getting into waterways because because water is the all life forms rely on water clean water downstream so streams and stream margins certainly a focus and existing bush areas as well so wherever there's any natural biodiversity there at the moment um, particularly in remnant forest or scrub often associated with streams or wetlands good idea is to focus on what you've already got build on the values the natural values that are already present you're going to i think create something uh, more significant by doing that Okay, so we've got wetlands, streams and rivers, and existing native bush areas on farm. Perhaps can we talk through each of those in a little more detail, Roger? Yes, certainly. And um, you'll get uh, from me well and truly at the moment that I value the role that wetlands can play. You know, there's a lot of emphasis on them and protecting them. Um, there's a bit of legislation out there right now sort of that helps that process as well to some degree. Wetlands, you know, if we look at the four things we're talking about, the elements you need to look at, to, you know, for a good environmental management, which is biodiversity, water quality management, nutrient management and carbon. A good wetland system, uh, one that has stays wet all year round, and that has been enhanced and, and looked after, can address all four of those in, a, in substantial ways. You know, we're learning more and more now, for example, that good wetlands are significant carbon sequesters or storers. You look after it, you allow the organic material to grow on it, and you're going to be a, a, a contribute to carbon storage or removal of carbon dioxide from the environment. Certainly amazing places for diversity of, of animal and plant life. We have got some... You know, really uh, interesting wetland bird species that dearly need more habitat around the country. Insect life tends to thrive in those places. In places where we still have native bats, for example, wetlands and the insects they produce tend to draw uh, a native long-tailed bat in particular back into those zones. So here in the Waikato where I am, we have bats being quite reliant on riparian and wetland margins to operate. But perhaps the greatest uh, value of wetlands I see on farms is around their ability to filter out and to uh, remove nutrients and to some extent um, sediment, but particularly fecal contaminants as well. We have in all of our natural systems bacteria, denitrifying bacteria, when they're present and they're being looked after, can break down nitrate into inert nitrogen gas and, and water. You know, that's the ultimate cleaning device, if you like, for the nitrate that tends to be produced on productive farms. These organisms exist naturally in, in our soils, but they particularly um, thrive in a shallow wetland system, um, one where livestock have been excluded, uh, where there's a, a large amount of planted sedges and, and rushes, the water is shallow and spends quite a long time in that wetland system. These bacteria just proliferate, they take over and they just gobble up, literally feed on the nitrate and, and turn it into something safe. That activity doesn't require any major inputs other than just the protection of the wetlands, but you know what can flow out the other end is, is much cleaner water than flows into it. So, so in a farming system, if you look on a farm, you look at a, a downstream area or area, as I said earlier, that wants to stay wet all the time, it's not of much value productively um, if you really look at the you know, cost-benefit side of it. Putting a fence around it, planting it up with native sedges and rushes, 
and uh, keeping the weeds and the pests out of it, and you'll have a natural system cleaning and taking nitrate out of it. So it's, look, that one in particular is of, of highest value on a farm where there are opportunities to either recreate or to enhance wet areas that exist. Look, if we move on to the others as well, streams and stream margins, I think people, you know, farmers generally know of the, of the need to retire or to fence off stream margins. The key there, I think, is to keep stock out of, out of those margins wherever you can. The interesting thing to me is that rather than being carried away with you know, wholesale planting of, of 100% of, of stream margins, the integration of, of seeps and wetlands and those drainage points that enter streams are the ones where the most gains can be made. You know, using applying the wetland sort of philosophy to it all, if we can put a whole lot of sedges and rushes and, and native plantings in the path of, of where runoff runs across the surface and into rivers, we can intercept that first. Um, you're slowing down the speed of water. The denitrifying bacteria are going to take out some of that nitrate. By slowing the speed of water down, your sediment will settle out more and won't reach the stream. And same with you know, your faecal matter um, being carried along the surface as well. If the speed of water flows is reduced, there's much more chance of that falling out of the system. And over time, UV sunlight will kill those bacteria, but what we don't want is them fast-tracking into streams and polluting the waterways. That's how I think both of those are, are priorities. Um, the bush areas really, um, those who are lucky enough to have bush areas on farms at the moment, the health of those areas requires that livestock are removed. We need fences, but not only that, we, pest control and weed control on those. Nothing else, even if you don't want to do any additional planting, but just good pest control and continuous pest control over time. Uh, we'll see a huge increase in uh, regeneration underneath that, the canopy of the bush areas that are there and the crowns and the health of those um, species within that bush area will thrive as well. So, you know, nothing more than the fence and a bit of pest control, I think, can make a, a big difference to those areas as well. So that, that's existing native bush areas, Roger, but, but what about opportunities to establish new areas of bush or, or natural indigenous vegetation on, on farm? Is that something that farmers could also be considering? Uh, yes, they should. And, and you know, I, I guess I'm fortunate where I live where most hill country farms in my vicinity where I live you know, have some native bush on them. But, you know, I grew up and farmed with my father in North Canterbury and um, I don't think we had a single native plant on our whole property. On those sorts of properties or where there are no natural established stands of, of native bush, there are definitely opportunities for establishment of natives again, if you like. Once again, I'd, I'd suggest if you can focus around any wet areas, wetlands or stream margins, the presence of water just helps um, encourage successful establishment of new plants. Um, the integration of waterways with native bush plantings too, the, the bigger you can make or more contiguous you can make any area of, of native vegetation particularly, uh, the more valuable it will be. If you can integrate with a, a wetland and a stream and plant around that, then you get the benefits of all the different types of plants and animals that live in those different um, you know, microhabitats. But look, establishing on farm, the key really is to, first of all, look at those areas that aren't so productive. Even flatland cannery farms have areas that I think are, are not as productive as other areas. For those who've got pivot irrigators, you know, the, the triangles or the bits between the pivots might be places where you can reintroduce some of these species. Provide shelter over time. Once you get natives established and, and they're growing well, they don't require a huge amount of attention. But, you know, on, on rolling country, faces that are simply just not productive. Um, back corners of the property that um, you know, don't, don't grow grass that well. There's some warnings here too. The key with establishing natives is to make sure you choose the right species species that are suited to the environment you live in. And 
open pasture areas with no cover are hostile. So you can't go on and start by planting rimu and, and mitre and matai, your, your canopy forest trees, because they're not made to grow in those open colonizer type environments. Start with species we call colonizers, you know, caprosmas and things like kotamika, manuka, kanuka, cabbage tree, flaxes, things like that. Get, get some cover up first. And then later you can interplant with your tree and your canopy species and perhaps some of the species we, we prefer to see there ultimately. So, look, yeah, be careful for those who are wanting to start. Be sure to go and get some advice from local experts. Even local native plant nurseries are a good place to go to learn how to get some established natives in, in a new environment and, and to have successful survival. Okay, so we've talked through the environmental considerations that you could be focusing on. We've talked through the the particular locations within the farming systems to potentially target and the opportunities around establishing new native vegetation and bush. But when you start to bring it all together and go on, on my farm, which of those do I apply to where? And obviously each of those come with a cost. We've talked about establishing uh, indigenous vegetation and, and, and fencing, and obviously there's trade-offs and considerations to be made there. So when you pull it all together, how do you suggest farmers go about undertaking planning for environmental enhancement on farm, Roger? Yeah, and look, to re-emphasise what I said a little bit earlier, it can seem too complex and too expensive and too much of a task, I think, for a lot, but you can break it down. The first thing I always encourage farmers to do is, is to look for the natural values they currently have. Most farms have something there that has some uh, remnant, if you like, of either of indigenous plant or animal life, or even just waterways, you know, water flowing through a property or springs emerging on a property, even drains you know, running through a property, they're a focus point to build on. Even in uh, thinking of some of the irrigation channels in Canterbury, for example, you know, we've found that there are mudfish living in those, even though they're artificial. So it's unusual for any property not to have some area there that currently has some natural values. Best gains to get for effort will be to determine where they are and what they are and focus on building on those. So it might be that little bit of native scrub, manuka or something sitting in the back corner. It might be a stream with a little bit of riparian native vegetation on it, but it has inanga or, you know, whitebait species swimming up and down. It might be a wetland that has, um, you know, some fern bird or something in it. It's a remnant, but it's something to build on. So I'd encourage just doing a, your own inventory, really, of, of your property. Look at where those those values are and building on those, and particularly if they coincide too with areas that are less productive on the farm. So it wouldn't hurt to take that two or three hectares out uh, because really it doesn't provide much in the way of grazing, but hey, it's got some wetland areas in there and, and there are a few fern bird or other wetland species that are coming in and out periodically. So that would be my initial suggestion, focus on those areas and do so in a, in a small scale until you've learnt from experience how to, to do the restoration work, learnt what benefits you get when you take livestock out. Look at what the pressures are too. So what what animal pests and what weeds are are challenging the indigenous values that are there. You know, it might be that a, a fence and pest control is all that is needed. In other places it might be supplementary planting that's of natives that, that is needed. And others it might be, you know, even, even to fill in some of those drains and let that water spread out across the wetland area rather than being fast tracked off. So go back and look at those natural values and see if you can where they are on the farm and, and build on those. So where do farmers sort of go from here? So where do they go to actually get some further information to investigate some of the ideas or concepts that you may have helped sort of promote in this discussion here, here Roger, if they're looking to go a bit deeper, where, where would you suggest they start? 
Yes, and, it, and look, this can be challenging too. It is really important to get good information. And if I can just perhaps take a little sidestep into this one and, and look at the wetland side of things, you know, I've been advocating the use of wetlands and the construction of wetlands on farms to deal with nutrients for quite a few years now. And the unfortunate thing with that is that there's quite a fine line between creating a wetland that will make a big difference and one that will make no difference at all, or even one that will create more problems. The classic example of that is that if you created a deep hole with a lot of open water in it, it'll be little more than a duck pond. It won't do any nutrient processing or not not to any significance, and it won't contribute to the removal of nitrate particularly, but it could well contribute to the increase in fecal bacteria coming from the waterfowl, the ducks and what have you that land on it. How you build this wetland, for example, you know, is critical. And in related to that, what it is you want to manage. So this is where the expertise needs to come in, I think, is that, and it can be tough, you know, where, where on earth do we go? I hear farmers say, you know, who do we believe? The first points of call now, I think, these days, and most parts of the country have them, are your, your local stream care and land care groups. They're mostly farmer groups. If you have one, those are people who have already gone out and sought information. More importantly, they're people who have, experience generally, had some experience themselves and learned probably from their mistakes and are willing to impart that knowledge. So what you don't want to do is end up making the same mistakes as your neighbour has. In a lot of cases, it might be just looking over the fence to see you know what your neighbour has been doing that might help along that way. Facilitating that and encouraging those groups is the New Zealand Land Care Trust. Um, they don't have a lot of staff around the country, but they do cover the country. Those who work for that trust you know, are generally really informed. Their job is to go out and advise farmers and, and help with the technical stuff or to link farmers with people who have that expertise. Um, look, other areas too, regional councils, particularly uh, more rural ones now, have advisory staff who have good knowledge of land and water management and environmental areas. Yeah, in fact, most now, I think, have staff that are available to do that sort of con- uh, advisory role. Online, there's a lot of information too, and there's one group I'm going to plug for. It's, it's a group called Tane's Tree Trust, who are advocates and promote the planting of natives for a whole range of purposes on farm and on land. And uh, you'll see their website is full of a huge amount of information, lots of publications that are generally available for free or very low cost, and some contact people there too who are incredibly knowledgeable. Other places to go, and, and look, I find with planting natives, there's often not quite the level of understanding as there is, say, for pine trees and what have you. And unfortunately, too, people tend to treat natives as though they are pines and you can just kind of dig a hole, push their roots into the ground and walk away and they'll grow. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Um, So native plant nurseries, if you've got them in your vicinity, going to them and talking about appropriate species, uh, species to start with, the sort of environment to grow into, um, they can be really helpful. And probably in connection with those to uh, any planting contractors, Certainly in the North Island now, there are more and more uh, professional contractors who specialise in planting native trees and shrubs, and and their practical knowledge can be hugely helpful. Other organisations like Dairy NZ certainly have some expertise scattered around the country too, but more so probably can take you to those who who do have that knowledge. So look, as I was saying, I think it is important to try and seek out some advice and some expertise to get started. After you've got going though, farmers are incredibly good at learning and and understanding the the systems and how things work on their farms. And I've found by far the best stream care and land care groups I've been involved with 
are those who've just started thinking for themselves. They've observed that a certain species of native doesn't do well here, but another one does. They've, they've found that wetlands thrive more with, with certain activity and when drains are blocked or when certain you know, things are done. Um, so you know, learning from experience, I guess, that'll come once you've sort of got initially started on, this pro- on a project and you've got a bit of expertise to get you going. Yeah, look, I think it's a really good point, Roger. You know, all of the solutions or options that I think you've outlined in this podcast have been, uh, shall we say, it's site-specific, isn't it? You know, it it comes down to the property, individual property and and its characteristics, and and, and no one's going to know that better than the the farmer or landowner themselves. So ultimately, it's going to be the knowledge they can glean from sourcing information and, and then applying it within their situation. Yep. And look, looking at what nature does too, if... Uh, Monica wants to grow, <laughs> let it grow. <laughs> you know, if nature is doing that, it's, it's giving you the signals. Obviously not on productive farmland, but, you know, if Monica is shooting up on some of these rough faces, uh, faces that you are looking at to put into native bush or forest, then, um, you know, use that species as an indicator. If it's thriving, uh, let it grow. You know, up in Northland, for example, Totara grows almost like a weed. Totara, when it's well managed, can also be a really good resource as a future timber tree. It needs to be pruned a little bit, but if it grows on its own, let it grow. It'll provide that canopy and, and other species will then come in. You know, nature, once it gets some momentum, uh, will do a lot of this work for you. That The only thing we're always going to have to do in New Zealand, um, unfortunately, is, is manage those exotic weeds that outcompete natives and manage those pests that eat them. Uh, that's in, at least until we, if we ever get to a predator-free status, which something we might by 2050, but if we do, great. But if we don't, we're going to have to continually manage both weeds and pests. And and that if you stay on top of those and you, you get nat- you know, the indigenous processes going, um, the rest of it will largely take care of itself. Now, I feel we've covered a, a lot of ground in this podcast, Roger. Are there two or three key messages or, or takeaways that you would like listeners to get from the session? Yes, there are. I'll try and keep them to three, uh, Blake, because it's probably more. But <laughs> yeah, look, first is um, for those who, who are not experienced or haven't done much of this before, you know, planting natives or looking after wetlands or planting stream margins, start small and do a little bit well and learn from it. You know, fencing particularly, but plants, the cost of plants, the cost of planting is expensive. You know, native plants are considerably more expensive than pines. So you know, the cost of making mistakes can be horrific and it does tend to put people off. You know, I've seen individual property owners retire three or four hectares, go on and plant them all in one season, lose you know, more than 50% of the plants and not have the resources to do the maintenance afterwards for the next five or six years till they're established. And, you know, largely it's a waste of time and waste of money. So do it small, do it well, learn from it. Do, as I was saying before, focus on those areas that are already there, the natural natural areas, if you can build on those, and learn from those too. See what is growing well and what's not and, and use that as an indicator. That's probably message number one. Um, the other is determine what your priorities are. Now, we talked about biodiversity, nutrient uh, management, water quality management, carbon management, that sort of thing. But even within the, the nutrient and contaminant management side of things, what is that the nutrient coming off your farm? Is it phosphorus or nitrogen that is the issue in the waterways? Determine what that primary priority is. 
If it's nitrate management, the way you manage that, what you do to manage that, will be different to what it will be for phosphorus or sediment, for example. One may benefit the other to some extent, but if nitrate's your focus, prioritise that and do the things that will make the most difference for that. If biodiversity, if, if it's terrestrial biodiversity or stream biodiversity is your focus and you're not concerned about nutrients, there's a, a different recipe. So determine what that priority is, get the advice to benefit that priority most, and focus on that. Don't try to do everything at once because you can't. Um, you know, you won't be successful at protecting um, whitebait species and controlling nitrate and controlling phosphorus and sediment, you know, by doing one thing. You, you, there's a whole range of things you have to do for each of those. So prioritise your, your objectives and focus on those, first of all. Um, the other, just to repeat, I guess, is seek advice to get you going. Get that the right expertise, local knowledge, you know, trouble with online is you can be reading, if you're in South and reading something from Northland, that's not going to help you a great deal, particularly in terms of species. So get local knowledge, and frequently that local knowledge is just over the back fence or the neighbour down the road. If they've done it, now it looks good, go and talk to them. And perhaps just the last one, just returning to what I said, is enter into this to understand, you know, the hows and whys things are happening, um, the processes that are going on. It's, it's no different to growing a crop or getting um, good production out of your cows or, or from your lambs. Understand the mechanisms that make it work, and then you can be the master of your own destiny. You'll be able to determine where to focus, where you're going to get greater success, what plant species to plant, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, learn, learn and understand those processes. Understand a wee bit about some of the nutrient cycles. You know, um, I can think of some of the members of our Pomahaka group down in South Otago there who knew all about nitrate and how it behaves and, and what breaks it down and what have you. And so they, they were designing new approaches that were incredibly successful, very innovative and quite unique in a lot of cases, but often they worked because they understood what the cause and effect aspects of the process were. So look, those are the main messages, Blake, I think. But yeah, going back to the beginning, start small, learn first, don't overcommit and you know, end up wasting money. I think you managed to sneak four in there, Roger, and, and the uh, <laughs> and the Pomahaka group. There might be a discussion whether it's a South Otago or West Otago catchment right, group, but I think the point remains the same. <laughs> yeah, good on you. That's good. <laughs> Hey, look, as I mentioned at the top of this podcast, in, in the, the relatively near future, farm plans will be a mandatory requirement for farmers. And, and I suppose each farmer's got that choice to make around how much in that process they engage around the development of, of their own plans. For those that do really want to engage and make it something more than just a, a document, I think there's been some really great insights here today, Roger. So so really appreciate having you on the show. Really looking forward to continuing to work with you and have the dialogue around this because the knowledge and information that you're able to provide is in high demand at the moment and, and very relevant to where our farmers are in terms of thinking about environmental or good environmental management on farm. Uh, thanks, Blake. That's, uh, it's been good to talk. Thank you for listening to Talks Growing Our Future podcast. If you're interested in learning more about how Rubberbank can support you to succeed in the future, please go to rubberbank.co.nz.